from PRX. I'm Kurt Anderson, and this is the Studio 360 Podcast. Studio 360's American Icon series has deeply examined dozens of important and influential works of literature, music, film, architecture, design, and all kinds of visual art, such as the Disney theme parks and the autobiography of Malcolm X and 2001 A Space Odyssey. These are the works of art and entertainment that have shaped who we are and how we see ourselves as Americans. Now, Studio 360 is turning to our hometown, New York City, for a new batch of icon stories. The stories about works of art that took shape in the city, but that have shaped the minds of people everywhere. The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath is set mainly in New York City, but it's not always thought of as a New York novel like Catcher in the Rye or The Age of Innocence are. That's probably because what's autobiographical about the novel tends to eclipse other aspects of it. Just a month after The Bell Jar was first published in 1963, Plath killed herself. Since the book is pretty autobiographical and its narrator attempts suicide, it can be hard not to read it as a sort of literary suicide note. But of course, there's a lot more to the novel. It's about a young woman from the Boston suburbs who, like Plath, lands a plum internship guest editing a women's magazine in New York in the summer of 1953. And it does a lot to capture what did and still does go along with trying to make it in New York. All the outsized possibilities and outsized disappointments. On this edition of New York Icons, producer Binish Ahmed has the story of the bell jar. I first read the bell jar when I was 16 and bored in Ohio dreaming of being a writer and reporter in New York City, a lot like Sylvia Plath, who won a golden ticket to that dream life, a summer working at a top women's magazine. When Sylvia Plath was at Smith College, she won a guest editorship to Mademoiselle. The magazine brought her and a number of other girls to New York in the summer of 1953. If you know anything about The Bell Jar, it's that it's based on Sylvia Plath's own life. When the main character, Esther Greenwood, goes back home after that summer, she, like Plath, attempts suicide, is committed to mental institutions, and is treated with electroshock therapy. But The Bell Jar is not just a story of an unstable teenager. Plath uses her own story to reflect on the culture she lived in. She lays out that mission right there in the first sentence. It was a queer, sultry summer. The summer they electrocuted the Rosenbergs, and I didn't know what I was doing in New York. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg had been convicted of conspiring to sell secrets about the atomic bomb to Soviet spies. That's a powerful metaphor, says novelist Meg Wolitzer. The beginning, the first lines of The Bell Jar, she talks about the execution of the Rosenbergs. And then later on, the character of Esther Greenwood experiences electroconvulsive therapy. And you make the link as a reader uh, about electricity and the terrible time in America, which I didn't live through, the Rosenbergs. But just the sense of her pain being expressed so beautifully, so clearly. We'll be back with more of our story about The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath after a short break. 
We're back with our New York Icons feature about the bell jar. Producer Beanish Ahmed picks up the story. Reading the bell jar again, now that I am a writer and reporter in New York, it felt like a completely different book than the one I remembered. One where everything that dazzles about the city also contains some kind of doom. From a fancy dinner of crab salad that poisons to a thrilling date that turns violent. New York City is this paragon of possibility. But that's just it. Anything was possible in the New York City of the Bell Jar. And a lot of it was harrowing for Sylvia Plath. Only she had no way of knowing that. At the start, it all seemed so wondrous. I was supposed to be the envy of thousands of other college girls just like me all over America, who wanted nothing more than to be tripping about in those same size 7 patent leather shoes I'd bought in blooming. In many ways, the 50s were booming. Fashion magazines capitalized on the end of the austere war and a new prosperity. The ads in those magazines showcased trends like the hourglass silhouette of Christian Dior's new look. Puts on show his summer creations. And tailored tweed suits by Coco Chanel. Mademoiselle was one of the biggest magazines in the country at the time. And every year, promising young women won the chance to put together its annual college issue. The novelist Diane Johnson was one of them. She joined Plath as a guest editor at Mademoiselle 66 years ago. So you can imagine that my memories have faded a little. Johnson is 85. She divides her time between Lake Tahoe and Paris. But back then, like Plath, she hadn't spent much time outside of her small town. Plath came from Wellesley, Massachusetts, and Johnson from Moline, Illinois. The whole experience of urban sophistication and the great world of fashion and magazines and so on was extremely shocking and fascinating, I guess, but a little scary. It was also incredibly busy. The magazine had us scheduled from morning till night with with thrilling events. Fashion shows and theater performances, dinners at high-end restaurants and dance parties where Ivy League boys in crisp white blazers were hired to be their dates. Johnson says she and the other young women had been told in advance what to wear. For instance, we had to wear hats, and we could not go without our hats. And we were not to wear white shoes, I remember. And there were other rules like that, that they just didn't want us to look too much like country mice. Plath had a special role that summer. Mademoiselle had named her guest managing editor. You had the idea that it was kind of preordained that she would be this personage. And so we all had that impression of Sylvia, that she was uh, kind of the big shot. So we were a little in awe of her. Look what can happen in this country, they'd say. A girl lives in some out-of-the-way town for 19 years, so poor she can't afford a magazine. And then she gets a scholarship to college and wins a prize here and a prize there and ends up steering New York like her own private car. Only I wasn't steering anything, not even myself. I just bumped from my hotel to work and to parties and from parties to my hotel and back to work like a numb trolleybus. 
Good to meet you. It's good to meet you as well. Heather Clark is the author of a forthcoming 900-page biography of Plath. I meet up with her and we take a look at the magazine Plath oversaw that summer. You know, what struck me the first time I looked through this was the number of ads. You just can't quite believe how many ads are in this magazine. It's almost page after page. And of course, fashion spreads. It's a fashion magazine, so... In a back room of the New York Public Library, we're flipping through a copy of the magazine. Clark points out one ad in particular. It's for shapewear that's also sportswear. So this Jansen ad, anyone for action? Anyone for beautiful form and action? There's a woman with a Barbie physique, wearing a hat and gloves, with a bra and girdle, as she gets ready to serve in a game of tennis. This is, if we do say positively, the most pleasant-to-wear, slimming, trimming, smoothing, soothing figure maker ever devised. And there's a Plath poem called The Applicant, where she uses this kind of language. I notice you were stark naked. How about this suit? Black and stiff, but not a bad fit. Will you marry it? It is waterproof, shatterproof, proof against fire and bombs through the roof. Believe me, they'll bury you in it. Mademoiselle had become interested in her after a story she had submitted a year earlier won its national fiction contest. But Clark says that Platt struggled in her role as managing editor. She had wanted to be fiction editor. At just 19 years old, Plath had already published poems and won awards. Mademoiselle published some of the top writers of its day. Dylan Thomas, Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote. But instead of selecting and editing short stories, Plath wrote fashion blurbs, including one praising the versatility of sweaters. I think Plath found herself suddenly embedded in this in the fashion and beauty industry, and she's become part of this vast propaganda machine that turns women's, women into objects. And, you know, she wanted to be the subject of her own life. She didn't want to be the object of someone else's life. So I think that contributed to her sense of disillusion that summer. Suddenly it was her job to kind of objectify women. Bio-green, they were promoting it for fall. Bio-green with black, bio-green with white, bio-green with nile-green, its kissing cousin. Fashion blurbs silver and full of nothing sent up their fishy bubbles in my brain. They surfaced with a hollow pop. But it isn't just the limitations of fashion and magazines that got to Plath. She was also troubled by the limitations placed on women in the 1950s, even in New York City, that place of possibility. I made a point of eating so fast I never kept the other people waiting who generally ordered only chef's salad and grapefruit juice. At one point in the bell jar, she says everyone in New York was trying to reduce. Plath is not trying to reduce. Plath has an enormous appetite. I mean, it's her, her actual appetite was legendary. I mean, she, she once, you know, emptied out a host's refrigerator before a dinner party. But she had an appetite for, for everything, you know. She wanted to be the best writer. She wanted to sew her own clothes. She wanted <laughs> to raise honeybees. She wanted to make her own, you know, honey. And she just wanted it all. Can women have it all? It's a question we're still asking. It had just started to come up in the 1950s when women who'd done the whole Rosie the Riveter thing during the war were now expected to be homemakers again. 
even though many had thrived in the workforce and developed real professional aspirations. It was an ongoing discussion within society about whether women could do three things at once. Diane Johnson got married one month after the guest editorship at Mademoiselle. The summer had changed her and given her a greater sense of what her life could be. But then she had four children within the span of six years. So I was home with these little kids, but they had naps. And that's when somebody said, why don't you write a novel? That's something that you can do during nap time. You know, that's the way things evolve. And I evolved into a novelist because of nap time. Johnson has since written more than a dozen books and been a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. For Plath, marrying a man who would support her as a writer was a major anxiety, one she wrote about extensively in her journals. In The Bell Jar, Esther Greenwood reflects on her sort of boyfriend, a medical student at Yale who everyone told her was such a good guy. I also remembered Buddy Willard saying in a sinister, knowing way, that after I had children, I would feel differently. I wouldn't want to write poems anymore. So I began to think maybe it was true, that when you were married and had children, it was like being brainwashed, and afterward you went numb as a slave in some private totalitarian state. A few years later, Plath thought she found a man who would not brainwash her. As a graduate student at Cambridge, she met fellow poet Ted Hughes, who she married in 1956. Both enjoyed growing reputations as writers when they were interviewed by the BBC's Owen Leeming in 1961. You wouldn't like to give the impression, though, that uh, you spend your whole married lives thinking up poems and reading them to each other. I think our domestic life is, is practically indistinguishable from all the people who live around us. The only main difference is that Ted doesn't go out to work at nine and come home at five. He retires about nine to, to his room and, and works. But I certainly have a life just like all the other housewives and mothers in our district and shopping dishes and uh, taking care of the baby and so forth. So for Hughes, writing was a full-time job, a career. But Plath was a wife and mother who happened to write, perhaps like Johnson during nap time. Plath was actually writing The Bell Jar at the time of that interview. She alluded to it when she was interviewed again the next year, this time by the BBC's Peter Orr. He asks Plath if there are particular themes that she's interested in exploring, and she rambles off this sort of list of ingredients that she's baked right into The Bell Jar. Robert Lowell's poems about um, his experiences in a mental hospital, for example, interest me very much. These peculiar private and taboo subjects, uh, I feel, have been explored in recent American poetry. I think particularly of the poetess Anne Sexton, who um, writes also about her experiences as a mother, as a mother who's had a nervous breakdown, as an extremely emotional and feeling young woman. And She drops all sorts of clues without revealing what she was up to. I always wanted to write the long short story. I wanted to write a novel. Now that I uh, have attained, shall I say, uh, a respectable age and have had experiences, I feel much more interested in prose, in the novel. I feel that... Plath published The Bell Jar under a pseudonym because she was so worried about offending the people she fictionalized as characters in it. One of those characters was her editor at Mademoiselle, 
who she called JC. In the bell jar, JC asks Esther what she wants to do after college, and suddenly she draws a blank, unable to list off all of her ambitions of being a professor and a writer or an editor and a writer. I've always thought I'd like to go into publishing. I tried to recover a thread that might lead me back to my old bright salesmanship. I guess what I'll do is apply at some publishing house. You ought to read French and German, JC said mercilessly, and probably several other languages as well, Spanish and Italian, better still, Russian. Hundreds of girls flood into New York every June thinking they'll be editors. You need to offer something more than the -the run-of-the-mill person. You better learn some languages. JC is a tough editor who cuts her down to size. In that way, she calls to mind another memorable story set at a women's magazine in New York. So you don't read Runway? Uh, no. And before today, you had never heard of me? No. And you have no style or sense of fashion? Well, um, I think that depends on what you're... No, no, that wasn't a question. That, of course, is Meryl Streep as Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada giving a very similar takedown to Andy Sachs, her would-be assistant. That's a a complete exaggeration. Anna Wintour is the longtime editor of Vogue and the basis for Miranda Priestly. And The Devil Wears Prada is based on a novel by Lauren Weisberger, who, like Sylvia Plath, fictionalized the experiences she had working at a magazine, in her case, Vogue. This is how Wintour responded to the film in an interview with 60 Minutes. I mean, I guess in response, I can only say that I've had, I have so many people here, Molly, that have worked with me for 15, 20 years. And, you know, if, if I'm such a bitch, they must really be a glutton for punishment well, because they're a, still here. I wouldn't use the word bitch. Maham Hassan dreams of working at a magazine even though her experience of that world so far has been less narrative essay and more transcription. Johnson and Plath were wined and dined by Mademoiselle. Hassan barely scraped by at internships at New York Magazine and Elle. And she wasn't just a college kid figuring it all out at the time, but getting a master's degree at NYU. We're all just these eager little pond fish, you know, the kind that jump out and skip all the time, who are just trying to flash their tails and be like, look at me, notice me. Part of the issue, Hassan says, is when she looks into editorial meetings and sees no one who looks like her. Seeing no brown Muslim person at all. And it's not that the people who are running the place are actively visually standing in front of me barricading the place, but then it makes my mind run. And I'm like, well, why isn't there anyone like mean there. It's not because no one else tried. So if they couldn't get in, what makes me believe that I will get in? One criticism of the bell jar has been how Plath handled race, using slurs and stereotypes. But her world was mainly a white world. All of the guest editors looked nearly identical in a photo taken of them for the magazine. Every one of them was a white woman in a neat little bob. As the executive editor of Teen Vogue, Samitha Mukhopade is one of the rare women of color in a top position at a national magazine. And she gets where Hassan is coming from. 
I mean, the way I broke into the industry, I like almost don't even like to share this story because it's like, it's so, it's just like so unfair in some ways. It's like I worked for free for like a decade, right? I, I mean, I, I ran a blog and I, I cultivated my voice and then I got a book deal and it was like, it came at a great personal cost and I did it in my free time when I was like not working odds and ends jobs, knowing I wanted to like, you know, be a writer one day. Even though she shared the same aspiration as Sylvia Plath, Mukupade didn't connect with the bell jar when she read it as part of a women's studies class in college. That's because she never dreamed that an opportunity like the bell jar would plop down before her. Not much about her story was relatable to my own experience. And I will say a part of it is like I never even thought that I could have a job in publishing. Mukupade has made it a point to put a spotlight on the experiences of others who might feel like she did as a young person. An outsider looking into the world of magazines and models and makeup, but not seeing herself reflected back. It's still a challenge. Advertising really needs to kind of catch up with some of that diversity, right? And, and, and I think that we, you know, for as much as like we try to reflect a certain type of very woke, young, diverse person, there's this like broader industry that hasn't like fully embraced it, right? And so you have both, you know, I think in terms of what advertisers look for and what they think is kind of appealing to the American consumer. But then you have companies that don't provide the products that you need, right? You don't, we don't have enough like companies that have extended sizing. We don't have enough beauty companies that are kind of have the diversity of makeup that we want. I show Mukupade that Jansen ad Plath biographer Heather Clark pointed out to me. Anyone for tennis, anyone for action, anyone for beautiful form and action. Is this Spanx for tennis? Her reaction surprises me because all those images from the 1950s of women in girdles and corsets seem so dated. But today, we're buying into the same insecurities, just with updated terms. But it's interesting that you make that connection, like this is still with us, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's still, yeah, in like kind of intense ways now with, you know, waist trainers and flat tummy tees and plastic surgery to create certain silhouettes. I feel that, yes, that is <laughs> that is very much with us today. Meg Wolitzer, the novelist, has so much in common with Sylvia Plath that it's uncanny. Wolitzer also went to Smith College and had early literary success there. And she also was a guest editor at Mademoiselle in 1979. I must say they really gutted the lobby. It, it was completely different. We're standing outside what used to be the Barbizon on the Upper East Side. So I loved it. The hotel where both Wolitzer and Plath stayed during their time as guest editors. I loved its strange, mildewed quality. I loved being part of that even as it was a last gasp. We ended up being the last guest editors that they ever had. We were the last crowd because magazines were changing, the world was changing. And New York was changing. The building is now multi-million dollar condos, complete with an Equinox gym. Just peering in now, it's this super high-end looking residence, but it was a dark lobby, not very welcoming. And men couldn't go above the first floor, I think, unless they were accompanied by a woman. I I can't remember exactly, but there was a sort of sense of the past even then. It was like a last vestige of New York that I'd read about in books like The Bell Jar. For Wolitzer, staying in an all-women's hotel with rules like that in 1979 felt like stepping into another era, 
a lot of those rules had been in place since Platt stayed at the Barbizon 25 years earlier. She called it the Amazon. This hotel, the Amazon, was for women only, and they were mostly girls my age with wealthy parents who wanted to be sure their daughters would be living where men couldn't get at them and deceive them. Wolitzer read the bell jar at the emotionally turbulent age of 13. Adolescence is a time of firsts. So as an adolescent, you are feeling things for the first time, you are reading them for the first time, and you feel often like your head is filled with fire when you read somebody else's experience that you hadn't understood. That feeling is one Wolitzer set into motion in her young adult novel, Beljar. That's B-E-L-Z-H-A-R. The book is set at a boarding school for students who have experienced some sort of emotional trauma. Five students are placed in special topics in English, a class where their teacher, Mrs. Quinnell, has them read just one writer over the course of the whole semester. She reaches below the table and pulls out a stack of five identical books, which she passes around. It's the bell jar. A student named Mark has the same reaction many people do when he sees it. This is from the audiobook version of Wolitzer's book. I know that book, he says. It's supposed to be really dark. I think I remember something about the author. He pauses, not sure if he should go on. Go ahead, Mark, says Mrs. Quinnell. Well, he says uneasily, I guess she, you know, killed herself. Is that right? She turned on the gas and put her head in the oven? Yes, that's right. No offense, says Mark. I'm sure you're a good English teacher and all, but is that appropriate for us? The students find the book to be more than appropriate. The bell jar's handling of themes like alienation and depression are all too familiar to them. Wolitzer says that she and the last batch of guest editors felt their own connection to Plath. On the last night of their stay at the Barbizon, they climbed up to the roof to honor her. We definitely said something about Plath at the hotel, a sort of some kind of summoning her up in a way, because I think we were all really aware of her, aware of her presence throughout this experience as guest editors. The moment evoked a passage in the bell jar about Esther's last night in New York City. Piece by piece, I fed my wardrobe to the night wind, and flutteringly like a loved one's ashes, the gray scraps were ferried off to settle here. Exactly where, I would never know, in the dark heart of New York. Esther throws away all of her clothes after she returns home from a party. Her face is bloodied and her dress is torn from fighting off a man who had attempted to rape her. Marco set his teeth to the strap at my shoulder and tore my sheath to the waist. I saw the glimmer of bare skin, like a pale veil separating two bloody-minded adversaries. Slut. The word hissed in my ear. Slut. The dust cleared, and I had a full view of the battle. I began to writhe and bite. Marco weighed me to the earth. Slut. I gouged at his leg with the sharp heel of my shoe. He turned, fumbling for the hurt. Then I fisted my fingers together and smashed them at his nose. It was like hitting the steel plate of a battleship. Marco sat up. I began to cry. Esther had a feeling about Marco when she first met him. I began to see why women haters could make such fools of women. 
women-haters were like gods, invulnerable and chock-full of power. They descended, and then they disappeared. You could never catch one. Until now. The Me Too movement has led to the fall of so many godlike men. The news might have been welcome to Plath. Biographer Heather Clark says it's hard to say if she experienced anything like the attempted rape she described in the bell jar. But Plath did tell friends she went on a bad date during her summer. And she did go up to the roof of the Barbizon on her last night to toss away her girdles. And the friend told me it was uh, the woman who was with Plath on the that night, and uh, she, she called them waist cinchers. She said, we threw our waist cinchers off, and she described them as instruments of torture. On that last night in the city, she threw away the preposterous beauty standards sold by advertisers, the social pressure for women to shrink themselves to fit into a man's world, to pare down their own desires. She refused to be an object for the taking by women haters. Plath had only been in the city for less than a month, and yet something had shifted inside of her during that time. Even her mother said so in an interview just after the bell jar was published in England in 1963. She came home and that was when she had her breakdown. She she couldn't concentrate, she couldn't read, she just uh, wasn't the same girl that went. At the end of the summer, she swallowed a near-lethal dose of sleeping pills. When she came to consciousness after her first attempt, the first thing she said, that was my last act of love. When I first read The Bell Jar as a 16-year-old, I couldn't help but feel envy for Plath at the start. The idea of an unsupervised summer in the city, a coveted role at a top magazine, a foot wedged firmly in the door of an industry that's still so hard to break into. Now I can see all the expectations that hung over Plath, some of them contradictory, and many of them issues we still deal with. That's part of the reason I think this book has held up so well. It's about a young woman that's having a nervous breakdown, but I think if you read between the lines of the bell jar, there's always this question of, well, are you sick or did your society make you sick? That story was produced by Binish Ahmed and mixed by Wayne Schulmeister. Lorraine Mattox read the excerpts from The Bell Jar. New York icons are made possible by a grant from the Booth Ferris Foundation. You can find our other New York icon stories at studio360.org. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 wherever you get podcasts.